the Shorshin Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Well, shalom, everybody. I'm Bill Cloud. I want to welcome you to this week's Torah Tidbit. This week, the tidbit is taken from the Torah portion that is called, in Hebrew, Tetzaveh. And that word means, you shall command. God said this to Moses, that is, Tetzaveh, in that Moses should command the people of Israel in the particular components regarding the sanctuary. One of those particular components provides the theme upon which we're going to place our focus in this week's Torah tidbit, and that is perpetual light. Now, while the previous Torah portion focused on the Mishkan, or the tabernacle, this Torah portion is going to focus on the Kohanim, the priests, their selection, their garments, the consecration of the priests, and it's going to also focus on certain pieces of furniture within the Mishkan. This, of course, is going to include the menorah, and this portion has a lot to say concerning the oil that was to be used in the menorah. In fact, our Torah portion begins with this verse in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. It says this, And you shall command, that is, Tetzave, And you shall command the children of Israel, that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to cause the lamp to burn always. And so they were to take pure oil. That word pure in Hebrew is the word zach, which it also can mean clean, transparent. But they were to take pure olive oil. That is to say, there was to be no foreign substance, no sediment in the oil. And because of that, it is believed that this oil was pressed, not crushed. In fact, it's believed that the olives were gently pressed so that the very first drops of oil that came out were what were used for the menorah because they wouldn't contain any type of sediment. Now, that the oil, which is the fuel for the light of the sanctuary, was to be pure has been interpreted to mean that the priesthood was also to remain pure. They were not to be contaminated by the rest of the nation in that those things that relate to the sanctuary. So consequently, they could not allow those who were unauthorized to take part in the sanctuary service to contaminate them, so to speak. Now, as believers, we are considered to be priests. We're a royal priesthood, Peter says. And so this understanding carries the same weight for us. We are to remain pure and uncontaminated by the world. We must not invite the profane things into our midst and defile the call to holiness. And it also means, at least this is the way I see it, that we have to be willing to be placed in the master's press and to be squeezed not crushed, mind you. Now, where the menorah was concerned, the text says that the light was to be perpetual, always burning. And the Hebrew term for that is ner tamid. Aaron and his sons were to clean the lamps in the morning. They were to replace the wicks in the menorah each day. And then they were to light the lamps at evening because it was to be a perpetual light. And considering that there was no other light in the sanctuary, as far as we know, it was very important that this task was accomplished daily. And when it was done, there was light. And there always has to be light. Thus, ner tamid. Now, there was one occasion in the history of Israel when the light was ignored 
and was in fact on the verge of going out. And this was in the days of Samuel, the days of Eli the high priest and his two wicked sons, Hophni and Pincus. Now that this almost happened indicates the waning spiritual condition of Israel at that time. And the, the reason I bring this out and the reason I believe it's important to consider is because the menorah is interpreted to be symbolic of Israel, God's people, in that we are called to be a light to the nations, as it is written in Isaiah 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles or the nations. At times that light has ebbed very low. In fact, in my opinion, it's never burned as bright as God intended it to be. And yet, the light has never been totally extinguished either. Now to some degree, that menorah has always continued to burn. God's people have always, to some degree, provided light. In fact, the term ner to mead implies that one of the lamps of the seven on the menorah always burned in the sanctuary, even if it was just one. And some traditions say that this one lamp was the middle lamp. Some say that it was the western lamp. And some traditions even make these two one and the same. But my point here is this. There was always at least one lamp burning, ner tamid. And that's how we arrive, in fact, at the notion of the shamish or the servant lamp, because this would be the light that would serve the other branches by kindling the light in their lamps. Now, as believers, we understand that Messiah Yeshua is that eternal light, that ner tamid. He is also regarded as the shamish, the servant, and he is the light that has prevented Israel from being extinguished. And so he serves to extend that light to all the branches, those that are on the left and the right, if he's in the middle, as Revelation seems to indicate he is. Now, consider this. Moses is the one that God singled out to perform three spe specific tasks pertaining to the sanctuary. They're this, the preparation of this oil that we've been referring to, the selection of the priests, and the selection of those who would make the garments and who would actually build the tabernacle. Previous to this, Moses had conveyed certain instructions to others and they saw to all these different tasks. But here, Moses sees to them personally. And here's why I find that to be interesting. Because Moses is a picture of the Messiah, Yeshua. And thus, Yeshua is the one who conveys to Israel what the Father is instructing. But he is the one who prepares the oil. He presses the fruit, so to speak, to see that the oil is indeed pure. He selects those who are to be his priests. In fact, he told us, I chose you. You didn't choose me. We're told that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And furthermore, he is the one who selects those in whom he has invested the wisdom to build his house. Now, Let's look at another verse in this particular portion that has bearing on our topic. And it's found in Exodus chapter 28, verse 15. And it says this, And you shall make the breastplate of judgment with cunning work. After the work of the ephod, you shall make it. And I read that because of that last instruction. He's the one who chooses those who are going to build his tabernacle. And the breastplate of judgment, which in Hebrew is choshen mishpat, 
Like the ephod, it was made of the same materials as the parochet, or we would say veil. But of particular interest to us is the fact that upon the breastplate were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Not only that, all 12 of these stones would not be considered common, but actually would be considered precious stones or gems, or we can use this word, jewels, which harkens back to something we covered in a prior Torah tidbit. In fact, if you'll recall, God's people are regarded as precious stones, peculiar people, his own special treasure. And if you'll recall, that Hebrew word is segula, which is literally a jewel. And so Israel is his treasure, his precious jewels, as it's written in Psalm 135. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to himself and Israel for his segula, his peculiar treasure. And so because we are considered as his precious stones, we should illuminate, we should shine, we should sparkle, and in general, be noticed by the nations. However, because we are called into his light, we are to reflect his light. Now, this is very interesting when you consider that the Urim and the Tumim had a connection to the breastplate of judgment. Now, we don't know for certain what the Urim and Tumim were. There's a lot of opinions as to what it was. But the Hebrew phrase Urim and Tumim literally means lights and perfections, or we could say this, perfect light. One tradition says that it was connected to the 12 precious stones upon the breastplate. In fact, this tradition believes that the priest would obtain direction from God by the Urim and Thummim when he stood before the menorah and inquired of the Lord. And the tradition tells us that the light of the menorah would cause individual stones on the breastplate to light up, and this would give the priest an answer to his inquiry. That would suggest then that the Urim and Thummim, the perfect light, was a term that referred to the 12 stones on the breastplate of judgment. And remember, those stones represent the tribes of Israel. And also consider the common theme here between the two, that is between the menorah and the Urim Thummim. It's light. And so considering that, this tradition is very interesting where you and I are concerned because we are to be a light. In fact, Ner Tamid, a perpetual light. So let's say that this tradition about the Urim and Thummim is correct. How important would it be then for all of the 12 stones to be where they were supposed to be? How important would it be for there to be the proper oil in the menorah? Because if there was no oil in the menorah, there would be no light in the darkness. Furthermore, if there was no oil, there would be no light to reflect off the face of the 12 stones. And if that happened, then God's people would be in the dark as to what to do. And so then if any of the stones were missing, the priest would get an incomplete answer. He might even arrive at a faulty conclusion. And so the point, we must all be willing to be pressed that we might render the necessary fuel, that is the oil, that there can be light in the menorah. All of God's people, all of his jewels, must be where they're supposed to be. That is to say, united. That the light might be whole, or it might be perfect. In other words, how can Israel fulfill the mandate to be a light to the nations if we're divided? 
how can there be this perfect light? Well, the answer is there can't be a perfect light if as living stones we're not united. And maybe, ladies and gentlemen, that's why we have to be pressed so that we will be more inclined to come together in the unity of the faith and to fulfill our mandate to be that perpetual light. Now, going back to something I said earlier, if God's people have never completely fulfilled that mandate, that's my opinion, if we've never fulfilled that mandate and we are living in the end of days, isn't it time that we begin to truly shine as He intended? Which means that we have to be willing to be pressed, that we have to come together in the unity of the faith, that not only can we walk in the light, but that we can be a light to others. I want to thank you for joining me for this week's Torah Tidbit. Till next time, Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.